Dermot and Dave. Conversation, crack, and the music you love. Today FM. It all happens here. Today FM. Now our next guest has quite the story to tell. Composer Bill Whelan joins us in studio. Grammy award winning Bill Whelan to chat about his new memoir, The Road to Riverdance. Bill, before we ask you any questions, can we just listen to this bit again? So that's the moment in 1994 Riverdance happened and the whole crowd stood up on their feet and it wasn't our entry or anything that was just our kind of our entertainment for Europe because we were, ho- show. We were hosting it yeah, yeah. Um, what was going through your mind just at the end of the because you had no idea how this was going to be received yeah no, it was, I mean, as the week kind of went down, the week of Eurovision, mm. you know, and the, all the rehearsals were going on, gradually we began to get an idea, hang on, all these other countries are turning up for our rehearsals. You know, they came up, the, the, all the, the Norwegians and the Swedes, oh. and they all started to turn up at our rehearsal time uh, just to see Riverdance. So we, we saw, oh, hang on, there's something going on here. Uh, but nothing really prepared us for what happened on the night. And it was, it was like... Because it was live and because there were like 50 dancers and musicians and an orchestra and, and a choir and so many things that could go wrong, go wrong. Of course. Um, but actually, it was, it was so for me, it was a very tense seven minutes. Mm. And then there was that moment at the end where there was a kind of a slight pause. That the pause is the most beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah, about it. Just, the audience kind of went, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then eventually, yeah, yeah. But isn't that amazing? You, you, they didn't really know what had happened. It was just that very emotional reaction to something that before people realised what was happening in their conscious minds, they were standing up applauding. Yeah, and you know, interesting what you say about standing up. Uh, I mean, in those days, a standing ovation didn't really happen all that often. Mm. You know, really didn't. And let's be honest, particularly not at a halftime show of Eurovision. Not that there weren't other good things, but yeah. this wasn't this place where no, you, know, you, you would get a, go, yeah, exactly yeah. go for that kind it's of not like scenario. Every, every week on X Factor, there's a standing ovation. <laughs> you know, and, and they only start. Yeah, they're three notes into the song. <laughs> yeah, that was the greatest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> was there a sense of relief, Bill? And if you said you were tense during the seven minutes, yeah, was there time for relief, or was it just the emotion then? Uh, well, it was. It was just an incredible you know because because you're right you know your nose is to the grindstone right up, up until mm. that last minute and then this happens and then I, I, I still have the memory the first thing I saw and I write about this in the book the first thing I saw was the, the security guys who were looked exactly the same at the end as they did at the beginning <laughs> true professionals yeah, true pros uh, so that was them but then I just looked around and I my, I just swept the audience uh, a, a pan from left to right and everybody was on their feet yeah. and every flag of every country was waving. And that, that, I, th- I think that more than anything else told us that this was something that resonated beyond just our own mm-hmm. national uh, interests. We've spoken sometimes to artists who you know, wrote an important piece of music but don't have any great memories of it. I mean, recently we had Coolio in here. Poor yeah. man passed away quite recently. But he was talking about Gangster's Paradise, which is on every iconic hip-hop list, you know, on Spotify, you know, f- over the last few decades. And he had no particular... He couldn't even remember what the song was about. He had no memory of writing the lyrics. Do you actually have, you know, a great memories or a detailed memory of, of that, that writing process or where the idea came from 
Was it knocking around your head for years and you just finally put it down? Or Yeah. Well, certainly the the elements that were in it were knocking around my head for, for years. Uh, and my work with tra- traditional musicians and with the orchestra had been ongoing. You know, I'd done the previous year, I did the Spirit of Mayo and the year before that, uh, the Seville Suite, which had trad players. And in fact, the Seville Suite had Irish dance and Spanish, Spanish dance. dance. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So that, they ended up in river dance, you know. So R- river dance was kind of developing in, in my own head. Yeah. Um, as to the moments of, of writing, yeah, I definitely do remember. I do remember sort of coming up with the themes. Uh, and I do remember the last thing I wrote was the lyric for the song at the beginning, Hear My Cry. Yeah. Uh, and that was, uh, so I do, and like because there was a, a lot of kind of back and forth, you know, I would bring in a piece into the, when, when, when we eventually assembled the, the dancers and the choreographers, I would bring in, you know, the music and we would work on it. They would, you know, see does how long does it take to move from that part of the stage. To the, we need an extra two bars. We need okay. take out four ah. bars. So there was that sort of, you know, definite collaboration on where you have to edit the piece in a way mm. to suit the, to suit the dancers. To, to, One of the things that I love about river dance is it is absolutely intrinsically Irish, mm-hmm. but it isn't for want of a better description, diddly eye Irish, if you know what I mean. Like, it, it, it has all the elements of the spirit of Irish music, but at no point, to me, does it feel like it descends into just pure trad. It has, it has so much going on. Well, I think that's down to the fact that, you know, trad music in its purest form, let's face it, and some, some trad purists would, would believe that trad music must be played either unaccompanied or with minimum accompaniment. Yeah. Mm. So harmonic accompaniment, in other words, setting uh, a, a load of chords and uh, sequences underneath the melody and also rhythmic accompaniment are generally, in some areas, frowned upon. Mm. Um, but I suppose what, what I tried to do was to keep the spirit of the tune uh, and obviously having it played by trad instruments helped enormously. Uh, to keep the spirit of the tune, but also to introduce uh, rhythmic stuff and and harmonic stuff that wouldn't be normal in, yeah. in the in the tradition. So I suppose, and like I I grew up listening to rock and roll mm. and jazz and you know played jazz, and so a, a lot of a lot of sort of my my influences would certainly have been contemporary uh, jazz, stroke, rock. Mm. You know, so I brought all of that to bear on it when I was writing it. I always think of the flow of water when I listen to it. Yeah. Maybe you find that's weird, but I can always imagine like it's like a, a, a uh, body. would it be a, a river perhaps, and, and would the river be dancing? No, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to throw it out there. <laughs> Dave, I didn't even, I didn't I, even think of that. I know. I have this vision <laughs> with music. Yes, that's fantastic. It, it does, but it, it does evoke like water <laughs> passing over rocks and busying itself down. You know, yeah. like it, yeah. it does what it says. You <laughs> it know, does, it's so yeah. weird. I never even thought of that. <laughs> yeah. I feel really stupid now. I know it's live, but can we? Cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> um, come here, you mentioned Dermot, you should be a critic. I I can just criticise myself. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you like the book, the Road River Dance covers you know all aspects of your life, and it goes back to your childhood home in Limerick, and yeah. you actually went to the same school. We did. We in, did in Crescent. I was a little bit ahead of you. A year or two. Yeah. A, a year. Or two yeah. Ahead. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
but very fond memories you have of growing up. It's not, it's not quite the Angela's Ashes experience that has been sold to us in other parts. No, it isn't. Um, I mean, we were fortunate enough. I mean, my, my family had a newspaper shop, mm. you know, so we were comfortable. Uh, but but I was just, you know, thinking about this recently. And in fact, I was in New York recently and I spent a, a fantastic couple of hours with uh, Malachi McCourt, who's Frank's brother. And we went through the streets uh, around where, because I was born in the street next to them, mm. to the McCourt, where, the, where where Frank and Malachi lived with their, their uncle, Sean, who was known as Ab Sheehan would be Angela's Angela's brother ah. and uh, so we grew up in the, in the next street now they were gone to America but I remember their house and uh, so we eventually met in America and, and uh, so we became good friends but I visited him recently and we went through all of the houses in the streets around us in the lanes I, you know I knew everyone you knew everyone and, and he knew everyone and there was that sort of there was a community of people living together in Nimic they weren't necessarily the same Shall we say socio-economic mm. group? But everybody knew everybody, and and you you felt you anyone could talk to anybody, you know. And I worked in the shop, and the shop was very much a mix of all kinds of people in Limerick. So I have very fond memories of that time, mm. you know, um, going around the corner to Jack Delaney's basket making shop as when I was a kid, and just sitting looking at him making baskets. I mean. And he sat there every day with a flag in his mouth and, and, and pulling the reeds and making these beautiful baskets. And when did music become obvious to you that this was what you were going to do? I know you were surrounded by music, but when was it like, you know, this is going to be what I'm going to do? Well, do you, you know yourself, you, you, you really kind of, like, I grew up loving kind of writers and uh, songwriters and, uh, and performers like everybody, and had some sort of dream that I wanted to be part of this. Now, I never really wanted to be uh, up front and, you know, leading the band mm. kind of stuff, but I did want to learn the craft of, of writing and the craft of orchestrating and, and being a producer, a, a producer, arranger, you know, all of that, and composer. Mm. So I sort of drifted towards it, but I found myself, even when I, was, when I went to college subsequently, I found myself drawn to it all the time. I was always turning up at places where I felt I could meet musicians, right. going to gigs, getting to know people, uh, turning up. At, I remember turning up at the door of Trend Studios, which was at the time, it was like the really, it was, as it said in the box, it was Trend. It was mm. where everything yeah. happened. You know, Thin Lizzy recorded there and Status Quo recorded there. And I turned up. You know, um, and sort of looking at the door, looking at the the owner, saying, uh, "Hi, <laughs> can I have a job? Yes. <laughs> I, I want to be in the music business. Am I at the right door?" Kind of thing. And um, so I was. I was not going to be diverted. I loved it all the mm. time. And and um, even though I studied and did four years of law. Uh, and, and qualified, I went straight into music when I finished. Yeah. Well, you've worked with so many great people. You've worked with U2 mm -hmm. uh, on their war album, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, Kate Bush obviously is in, uh, you know, in the public eye at the moment again, yeah. because of Stranger yeah. Things and running up that hill becoming such a hit for her all over again. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a quick listen to The Refugee, the song that you famously oh, yeah. worked on yeah, for U2. Yeah, yeah. Love this.
What a sound. Uh, Bono, of course, is, is around you know, in, in everybody's um, vision at the yeah, moment. We, we, we thought it would be very clever to bring the book out at the same <laughs> week as, as Bono's. Yeah. Yeah. That was a real marketing coup. Yeah. No, nobody thought of that. <laughs> yeah. uh, what, yeah. what were they like? What was he like to work at, right. that, at that point of their career? Great. I mean, it was it was full of a kind of an, a, a you know that that growing excitement. You know, here was something which was going to be uh, have a massive international uh, and was starting to have a, mass, a massive international resonance. Mm. And uh, and they were, you know, they they're still the same guys as they were then. I think. I mean, I've rarely come across anybody that I've known across a career mm. and seen them to just stay kind of as they started. You know, they. The, the fact that they've always been a unit and that they've, you know, with with Paul McGuinness, that the, there was a five-man yeah. kind of band, if you like. Yeah. Uh, and there was a great sense of a community of them. And and um, just listening, actually, to that little clip um, made me think, you know, God, that's such a relevant song right now. Because wouldn't Bono have you written know? that about their experience and, and everyone's experience of, of no, us being... Going to America. Going to America, yeah, exactly. exactly. But now, as you say, it's, it's relevant on so many levels. Yeah, well, so many things, actually, and forgetting about the putting aside the social things, one of the things that happened as a result of you 2 was that we were a very small parochial industry in Ireland making records for show bands, basically. Mm. And then you 2 and Wynne Mullane came along and, and then we, we completely morphed into a place where you would come to record if you were an international yeah. artist. And where instead of the artists, and you 2 did the most important thing, I think, that they did in terms of their effect on the industry, was that they kept all their people here. They kept their management office here. The the, the road crew were all sort of Cork guys, Joe Hurley. Mm. You know, there was a real yeah. sense that this was an Irish operation. And, you know, even though they did obviously interact with whatever they needed to internationally, they didn't go away in the same way that everybody else seemed mm. to have to do before yeah. then. Well, totally fair. Riverdance yeah. under the belt, Grammy under the belt. What's next for Bill Whelan? Uh, well, I will just go around and talk about books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's only got to written a book about it all. <laughs> and then back down to Galway, put yeah. the feet up. Yeah, no, um, I'm, I'm working actually, one of the most enjoyable things I'm doing at the moment is um, uh, there are two great singers from Karna, Seamus and Quiva O'Flaherty, and they are... I first recorded him when he was 13, and now he's in UL, actually, in Limerick, and so is she. Uh, and he's a great trad singer, He's a dancer, he plays harp, he plays baron, he plays everything. Wow. And she is similar. And the two of them blend together. They have two great voices. So we're just recording them in mm. uh, and a completely open agenda. Just bring them into the studio, just see what happens. They're both very creative. And that's, uh, I'm working with my son, Brian. And he's uh, he's with the four of us are in the studio every now and then. And there's no pressure. Yeah, we just see what do happens. It. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, look, I see you're doing an event this Saturday with Fiona O'Brien on chatting about the book, uh, which That's of course right. is the Road to River Dance uh, and your life as part of the Dublin Book Festival. It's on at seven pm in one Windmill Lane, which is perfectly fitting. Uh, with tickets and info at DublinBookFestival.com. Bill Whelan, uh, composer and proud Limerick man. Yeah. Thanks for dropping into us today. A pleasure. Thanks, Dermot. And thank you, Dave. Dermot and Dave. Weekdays from 9 a.m. Today.